Hello, my name is Rob Cutforth, and this is the end of all things. Today, I'm coming to you from my very own studio in Islington Mill. Very exciting. As you can probably hear, it is a touch echoey at the moment, as I have yet to install the rug, the curtains, and the other shit I promised, because my next proper interview isn't for a couple weeks. And, you know, <clears throat> these things take time. And, and I couldn't wait to do recording in here. So here you go. Deal with it. Hopefully, the next time I record from here, it will be a lovely and warm sound. Um, however, I've never installed curtains before, and it looks really difficult. So it might be just like this. Um, hopefully it didn't sound bad. It didn't sound bad through the, the earphones. It sounds actually okay. I spent the day today writing the script for my MA project in the Islington Mill Courtyard in the sunny sunshine. I cannot believe I'm saying this, but it is so hot at the minute. Uh, I mean, not hot enough to get a sunburn or anything, obviously, but I am slightly less alabaster now than I was a month ago. To be honest, it, should, it really should sound more echoey in here than it is. I can't really figure out why it isn't, as this studio's got high ceilings, a massive window, uh, four bare walls, and a concrete floor. All of this is recording studio poison, if the audio nerds online are anything to go by. I'm not sure I'm even going to need all that really expensive foam shit on the walls. Um... It's Saturday afternoon in here, so the place is mostly quiet, except for my neighbor, who appears to be playing U2 at full volume. I'm not sure if you can hear it. Um, I hope you can't. Ordinarily, U2 would make me go, it would set me into a rage, and I'd probably go over there and burn their studio down, um, except at the Joshua Tree. And I, can, I quite like that album, and so I, can, I, can, I suppose I can live with it. If it was U2's new shit, it would probably go up all murder-suicide up in here. <laughs> Just joking, of course. Or am I? Today, I talked to Andrew McMillan, who is one of the UK's, <laughs> I was going to say hottest poets, but that sounds a bit weird. One of the most popular poets at the moment, and one of the best poets at the moment. He won the last ever Guardian First Book Award, which is pretty awesome for a collection of poems. Uh, that sounds like a backhanded compliment. It has nothing to do with it being a, co a collection of poems. It's, well, it does. It's a, it's a first book award. I think it's quite rare for that to go. Well, it, it's not rare. I think he's the first one. So what am I talking about? It's fine. It's amazing. Very good. However, the award's gone now, and we talk about that and mourn it a bit. Um, these awards are weird. He won an award for best book, but was only runner-up for the big poetry book prize. The one that's named after the big famous poet guy. What's his name? Tony? No, <laughs> Tony. Oh, I can't remember. Anyway, the really big one, the massive one, worth, worth a shitload of money. Uh, Andrew names it in this podcast, and I suppose I could Google it, but it's too late now. Uh, you'll just have to listen to the pod. Dylan Thomas. Dylan Thomas Prize. That's the one. Can you tell I am not very good at knowing anything about poetry? How could I forget Dylan Thomas? Yeah. I, you know, I try to come across on this podcast as someone who knows a bit about writing and about poetry, but I think I'm more or less rumbled in the last couple interviews. I haven't a clue about poetry, but I am getting better. I think I'm learning. Uh... I've had a few poets on now, and they have given me some schooling. I even know who Ovid is. I even looked up Ovid Jobel and read a bit of Metamorphosis. So there. I suppose, like, I mean, it, you can't blame me for not remembering it. When you win nothing for your own writing, I suppose it's easy to forget what the prizes are called. In fact, I think in the podcast, I said the cost of First Book Award instead of Guardian. In fact, did I say cost it now? Anyway, whatever. The Guardian First Book Award. Andrew is very gracious, actually, and says nice things about the eventual winner of the Dylan Thomas Prize, Max Porter. I think his praise might even be genuine. It's funny that with writers now how nice everyone seems to be. 
I keep saying that. That's such a stupid thing to say, but it's true. I don't know if you can hear it, but I'm, I, there's this really, this tiny little shop next to in, uh, the Islington Mill, um, which is this no-name no place, really mom-and-pop, independent. And I bought a, a beer because it loosens me up when I do these things, and because I'm an alcoholic, let's be honest. And I asked if he did singles, and he says yes. And he pointed me to this one beer, and I can't set it down because the bottom is all rolly. And it's it, honestly, it looks like it's been shot. Uh, Sulfur day. What was I talking about? Andrew McMillan. He does two readings in this podcast. He does one from his award-winning collection, Physical, and a brand new one that has never been heard before, which is quite exciting. Aren't you lucky? He took requests, actually, when it, when it came to which one he should read, and I chose my favorite poem of his because when I read it beforehand, I thought it was hilarious. But when he reads it, it's really quite serious. So I can't decide if I'm just a moron or if I originally misread it or maybe I'm just a bit evil. When he reads it, you'll see what I mean because it's about his nephew and I thought it was one of the funniest things I ever heard. And when he reads it, it's not. The interview was excellent. Although, as usual, there are a few properly stupid questions by yours truly. So listen out for that. We talk quite a bit about John McGregor. And we both say some embarrassingly nice things about him. Uh, I think I actually get carried away and use the G word. Maybe I'll edit that out. No, I can't. There's just too much about him in it. I can't edit it out, so I have to leave it in and be embarrassed, as usual. I was at the Hay Festival last week for the first time, where I had a chance to see Andrew's father, Ian, do his Radio 3 verb thing, but I missed it because I was in a big old strop about the cues. When we arrived at the Hay Festival, there was a huge queue for, to get into the BBC tent, and then so I thought, well, we'll go get a drink first. Massive queue to get a drink. Went to our first gig, massive queue there. I couldn't take it. I left and had a big pout. And my poor wife, long suffering, is quite used to this sort of thing. And when we actually did go to the, sec- the, the first gig, the thing that we had tickets for, I realized how quickly the queues moved and felt a bit stupid about not queuing up for the verb, considering it combines all my favorite things, podcasts, a Macmillan, and writing. So, yeah, not the first time I've missed something because I'm being a jerk, and it won't be the last. Man, there are some white people up in that festival, I tell you. And, and I don't just mean there are loads of whiteies, which there are, but there are that they are a level of white that I think is only possible in the UK. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so white, they're like translucent. Um, so white, they're blue. I don't know. Is that mean? <laughs> I would feel bad about taking the piss out of Brits, except I get it every single fucking day of my life. Not a day has gone by. Well, maybe a day or two, but not many have gone by without a joke about moose or maple syrup or Justin Bieber. So you know what? Brits, deal with it. Uh, it's a funny old mix, the people at the Hay Festival. I've never seen so many hippies and toffs in the same place before. And they all seem to get along. I actually spoke to a real live toff lady and her daughter in the queue for the Salman Rushdie signing, and they seem genuinely lovely and excited to talk to scruffy old me about books. In a, which was annoying, really. It was in a totally non-condescending way as well. It kind of shattered my prejudiced view of the bastards. Um, although I have to admit, I still kind of hate those ones who wear the colored trousers. I don't really get what that's all about. There was actually a dude there wearing forest green trousers that at first appeared to be corduroy. And they had like a kind of like... Um, a turquoise sheen on them. There must be some kind of top shop where they get these really awful trousers and poorly fitting as well. I don't get it. Why do they've got money? Why can't they buy clothes that fit? I think they were velour actually, and I'm which is not the brightest 
trouser selection in 25-degree heat. No amount of non-condescending book talk could make those bad boys forgivable. I'm sorry. He had a jacket of a different color as well. With a pocket square? I was there in a t-shirt and shorts, so I'm no fashion icon by any stretch, but Jesus Christ, velour. I think his jacket was salmon. It was good, though. Lionel Shriver and the Letters Live thing were the highlights, as was Salman Rushdie, obviously. Uh, he was nowhere near as big an a- asshole as people make him out to be. In fact, he, I'd say he was just the opposite. He was warm and inviting, despite the room being only half full, and the clearly audible jokes from audience members about sitting outside the blast zone if a bomb goes off. I heard at least three or four. Oh, you know, isn't it hilarious? Terrorists might kill him at any time. It's, <laughs> it's just, uh, fuck you, everyone. He was mean to a man who asked him if he was dating uh, What's-Her-Face, that uh, moaning sex chef uh, who seems to be perpetually celebrating Christmas. You know the one I mean. Um, it's really hard to describe her when I don't know her name and without saying the one with the, the you know, the... God, I can't remember her name. And I can't say the big tits because that's sexist. Ah, oh, fuck, what is it with me and names today? I can't figure it out. Anyway, he cut that guy down, but I mean, rightfully so. If you're going to ask a stupid question, this is Salman Rushdie. This is one of the best novelists in history, I think. I don't think that is an overshot. Uh, I think he's, he's up there, definitely. Uh, and to ask him, well, you know, what do you think of you, those pictures of you and some famous chef person? He was friendly and forthright with me when I asked him a question. When he was talking about his book, he said this was the first novel that he didn't have planned right from beginning to end. He kind of let it flow as he was going. And as a result, he has loads of extra stuff cut out. And I asked him if he was going to use those for something else, and short stories. And his face lit up like it was the best question he'd ever heard. And uh, he gave me a great answer, signed my book, almost shook my hand. Didn't quite. The question wasn't quite that good. For the record, if you're interested in these, this short story thing, he said he will do it, uh, but he's going to let them rest for a while, which is something I often hear from writers and agents when I submit things. When they tell you to edit things or make changes, they, don't, they always say the same thing. Don't do it right away. Let it sit for a while and then come back to it. And I think that's really quite good advice. I think you can probably hear what my neighbor is playing now. I can't make it out, but usually this microphone's better than my ears. Is that going to be charming background noise or annoying? I can't decide. Lionel Shriver was delightfully spiky, and she gave George Alagaya a bit of a rough ride, which I have to say makes for great entertainment. Um, she's chosen not to have kids and has quite a bleak view of the future which made her entirely endearing to me. Uh, I've never actually heard words out of someone else's mouth that echoed my own personal feelings about life in general. It was almost creepy. But if you do have a chance to see her speak, uh, I highly recommend you take that chance. If you have a chance to see Mervyn King, however, feel free to give that one a miss. Jesus Christ, I don't know what we were thinking. If you want an idea of what it's like to see Mervyn King, uh, just imagine a Tory party conference and uh, try not to vom every time some dude in velour trousers shouts, here, here, when he says something about the banking sector currently being too regulated. Too many regulations. He actually fucking said that. I almost fell out of my chair. Anyway, in other news, do you know who's clinically insane? Irvin Welsh. Wow. I, there's not a lot I can say about his reading, except it was crazy. It was, and I, don't, I know I say that word quite a lot to describe, just to say something that was a bit fun. No, this, he was asked to do a reading, and he, I'm pretty sure he read a full chapter, and it was shouty and angry. He actually, and then regaled us with the story about how he assaulted Iggy Pop. He's mental. So yeah, anyway, go to the Hay Festival is what I'm saying. <laughs> Did you get that from what I've, what I've just said? Um, they criminally charge 10 pounds for a pint of Pims, and the food at the festival site is surprisingly shit. But I cannot deny the fact 
that I had big fun anyway, you know, velour trousers and expensive drinks aside. It was great. And you might just get a properly famous writer to sign your book if you're into that sort of thing, which uh, I most certainly am. Uh, Anyway, I have gone on enough now. Here's Andrew. Enjoy. No, I'm lying. It's toddlers. Yeah. <laughs> You're fooling no one, Andrew, because you've had loads of sales. It's been nice. Yeah. Is this not the best year you've ever had in your whole life? It's been pretty mad. Yeah. It came out in July 2015. Yeah. And so it's been pretty... And it comes out, you don't know if anyone's going to be bothered. Yeah. And a lot of massive debuts came out last year. You know, Sarah Howes came out, Becca Perry's book came out. There's kind of a, it just seemed to be one of those years where suddenly everyone's debut fell in that year. And, mm. and you kicked all their asses. No. <laughs> Sorry, I can't say that. Well, I'll pretend I didn't say that. I'll edit that out. No, but so it's been, it's been utterly surreal. And then just meeting people that have read it um, is always just fascinating. People's different reactions to it. And you know, people have really kind of... People have liked it. It's been nice. Sort of. Yeah. Thing. And not all of them were my mum just yeah. buying it on bulk to push at the sales. Yeah. Well, you've won the the very last Costa. The Guardian. Book award. Guardian. Sorry, did I say Costa? Yeah. Oh God. The very last Guardian book award. First 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 book award. Yeah, I killed that one, didn't I? Yeah. I was going to say. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Is it kind of a, a badge of honor? Do you mourn the? Award? I think it's really sad because like it was great to win it, mm. but what was great for like a book like physically is. It had, like it, it won the Albert Poetry one and it kind of got shortlisted for a few of the poetry prizes which is wonderful but it doesn't have that massive a spike in terms of like outside interest because the poetry world is such a small one mm-hmm. that people that wrote by that point it had been out about six months the people that are kind of interested in it in poetry have kind of bought it already or they're aware of it or they've already avoided yeah. it but the thing The Guardian did for me and for poetry was kind of like people that would never normally read it yeah. were suddenly aware of it and read it which is why I think it's a real shame like the one that won it the year before me was Colin Barrett who was a great short story writer and short stories another kind of genre that most people wouldn't yeah. go to um, and so it just seems a shame that because it's cross genre it can really kind of promote books that might not otherwise get that kind of attention Yeah. Um, but you know clearly Giving it to me, I drank so much of the free wine at that <laughs> event that it just it bankrupted the price and they yeah. can't continue. Yeah. yeah, do you think that's probably why they've shut it down? Because there's, I don't know, is there not enough? I don't generally, I mean, the, the story they had, which kind of makes sense, I think, is that because it's cross genre, mm-hmm. or when it first came out, it was the only prize of its kind doing a similar thing, whereas there's kind of the um, there's prize for first novel by a woman there's mm-hmm. a prize for there's Ted Hughes award which is kind of like multi-interdisciplinary for poetry mm-hmm. um, and so I kind of feel like they maybe felt that the uniqueness of the prize was going mm. um, but it is a shame and hopefully it'll come back in some sort of other kind of incarnation because yeah. it, it did a lot for me and it wasn't just the money it was kind of the attention yeah, yeah I think it's interesting that the, the one year they choose a book of poetry you know, do something interesting. You know, they call it the first book award, and to award it to a book of poetry—that's quite a big thing. Mm. And so they do that, and then it. shut it down. It's weird. I mean, in some ways, I think they'd always because they'd never gone to a book of poetry, and so I think there was something in whether they knew it was going to be the last one or not. But they kind of thought, well, "Let's give it to a, let's go out on a, a random note." Oh God, I hope that's not the reason. <laughs> no, it was clearly because it was superior. No. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It was a great shortlist. It's yeah. a great long list. And I'd never thought I'd win, so I got so drunk. Yeah. And I can't really remember the evening. Brilliant. There's a great rival podcast. Um, what? On, I know, on the Guardian, <laughs> Guardian Books podcast oh. of that evening, where I'm just utterly incoherent. Because as soon as they announce the winner, you go on stage and get the thing, then they take you off and do a podcast. Yeah. So I'm just like... Yeah, that's not good. At one point I go, clearly winning this is the falafel. <laughs> and they don't say anything else. And so there's just yeah. this really awkward silence. And they just kind of go, so, yeah. how about a poem? And 
But it was, it was lovely. Sorry, I don't even know what your question was. I'm bad at podcasts. That's fine. No, no, you're good at them. So this is my first stupid question of the night. Good. Uh, do awards matter to you? You've already kind of answered that, in that it was great for exposure and stuff. It's great. I mean, the honest answer is no. Because I never wrote the book, imagine anyone would read it, so I never kind of wrote it for awards. And they're such kind of arbitrary things that winning kind of doesn't... It, and it doesn't change anything, because the thing is, like, even after The Guardian or something like that, you still come home and you have to empty the dishwasher. Yeah. And, you know, it's not kind of like winning an Oscar, where you imagine yeah. your kind of life changes. And so on that level, yeah. they don't. What's really lovely is when on a shortlist, meeting everyone else so like just recently for the Dylan Thomas one just getting to hang out for a couple of days with like mm. people that I really like and admire and it kind of brings together a kind of community um, and that's really lovely yeah. but that's kind of all they really do they just let you hang out with people like Max Porter but on there one is... level visceral level they really do because they're fun yeah I, I think it's quite gracious of you to say say that sort of thing about, especially about the Dylan Thomas award because that's quite a big one I mean, it was such an incomprehensible amount of money that I, I yeah. knew I wouldn't win that. And Max's yeah. book is amazing. And I was so happy when he won and his reaction was so lovely. Because yeah. he'd been on the Guardian shortlist. Um, and I think it'd probably be many people's favourites to win, including mine. Um, and you beat him for the Guardian the award, Guardian, right? So I'm kind of one for one now. So it felt <laughs> nice to hit him the... Don't you know, know. Was, it was opposite, though. <laughs> no, it's just like a daft amount of money. Yeah. And it was just nice to go out in Swansea for the weekend and we got fed really well. And yeah hung out and things it was lovely and everyone on that shortlist was amazing yeah so it's just really nice and winning is nice but you know sometimes it's going to be sometimes it's not and I always end up feeling every time you have to kind of you know say oh it's been on this shortlist you always feel bad yeah. for the books that you know are very good and maybe don't get that kind of attention I think. see I, I think if this, if this sort of thing ever happened to me I just can't imagine even feeling sorry for the other people at all. <laughs> oh, but you do. You yeah. do. Not the ones that are nice. The ones that are really nice, you do. Yeah. See, maybe I, should, I shouldn't meet them beforehand. <laughs> That's always hard. It's like naming the lobster before you eat it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I've heard. I've never had lobster. Fine. Okay. So did, it, did you have... And this is... One of the things about this podcast is mm. I ask kind of practical questions. Okay. Uh, it's, it's geared mostly to like new writers and stuff. So... Did the award, did you have the, because you're working at Liverpool John Moore yeah. University now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are you lecturing? Um, creative writing. Creative writing. So it is creative writing. Yeah. Lecturing. Did you get that job before the award or did the award help you get the job? or is No, it... so I've been there three years now. So oh, I got great. the job, um, kind of, they took a chance under someone very young, I think mm-hmm. hoping of possibly knowing that I'd kind of stay there for quite a while and be kind of refable and all that kind of dull stuff the next time. Mm-hmm. So I got it in 2000 and... 14, no, 13, 2013, before the book was even kind of conceived of, really. Right. And then signed the, kind of got taken on by Cape in the first year that I was there. I'd had kind of pamphlets and things like that mm-hmm. before. Um, but they're kind of really happy that, obviously, kind of with what it's been doing. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so no, it didn't help me get the job. Um, but it's helped them like me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you get out of teaching other people? I, oh, I love teaching. I get... Why? It pays well, no. Yeah. It, um, <laughs> it, it makes me a better writer because I have to think all the time about it. And my mm-hmm. background was in, when I first graduated, kind of doing freelance stuff, so doing things like uh, working in community centres, working with excluded kids or like young offenders and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. I love that kind of work. Workshops? But, yeah, workshops or kind of writing in residency, commission, things like that. And the thing about that kind of work is I love it. You have to go in thinking, right, what's their access point to it? So actually the gig is to talk about rhyme or the gig is to talk about something, but what's their, what's this group's access point into that? Whereas in HE, what you hope is that you can go in and say, right, line endings and mm. just talk about things in quite a high, high-minded way. And also because a lot of it is workshop-based, you know, you're looking at these young people's poems, oftentimes they're very good, and you start saying, right, what about that comma? What about mm. that one? That word's not good enough. Think of the better word for that. Yeah. And so you go home and you look at your own draft and you think, well, if I'm saying that to them, yeah. then I have to be that rigorous with my own work. So it's made me much tighter and kind of rigorous with my own stuff, whereas before I think I was quite lackadaisical. Yeah. Um, and it's forced me into 
being as kind of critical of my own stuff as I have to be of theirs. What led to the writing of physical, basically? Um, what, not what led to it, but why, why be a poet? Why be a poet? Yes. Yeah. what always, when I kind of started writing properly, it's what always kind of came out, really. Mm-hmm. So it, um, when I was younger and I used to kind of write for fun, I'd write these kind of horror short stories, mm-hmm. or I'd write um, kind of little plays and things like, oh, kids write. Mm-hmm. And it just happened, that, and I ran away from it for a long time. Then when I started again, when I was sort of 16, 17, that's just kind of what it comes out as. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to be able to kind of write a play in the future, but poetry just seems to be whatever the idea is, that's kind of how it ends up coming out, Yeah, really. Um, I think it's interesting how I've done, I've asked, I've talking, spoken to loads of different writers in yeah. different genres and stuff. Horror comes up yeah. as, a, as an entry point for almost everyone. It's really strange, like even literary authors... Um, what is it about that that's so accessible? I think it's it's got so many kind of universal archetypes mm-hmm. that it's incredibly easy to pastiche and, then, and therefore write as kind of a young kid, your kind of yeah. own version of the haunted house or the ghost or the kind of zombie. And it can be fantastical in the same way that I think a lot of young people now are very interested in fantasy because in many ways the world can just kind of have its own rules mm-hmm. and it's very much easier to kind of invent that mm-hmm. and also I was just kind of reading I was reading like Goosebumps books and mm-hmm. Stephen King and stuff like that there's something about that kind of world that appeals to young kids I think because it, it can just be slightly mad and slightly mm-hmm. balmy and you can get away with things that don't make sense yeah. and a lot of young people's writing doesn't make sense because they've not learned yet to, to make it make sense and yeah. so that kind of horror world somehow can accommodate that yeah, it's also uh, almost unallowed as well. I remember the first time in my school library when I moved from junior high to high school and seeing Stephen King books yeah. in the library, you know, and reading those and thinking, "Am I allowed to read this?" Yeah. this is, like the first, I think the first one I read was "It" by Stephen King, and there's a bit in that where it's well, I mean, there's bits in all of them which are properly offside. Yeah, um, but it kind of lets. I think it it frees up young people to to write other things, but it certainly did for me anyway. It does, and I think and I think certainly like I was reading the Goosebumps books, mm-hmm. I was obsessed by them, and they're all done on this kind of very similar trope where the first chapter you'll think something bad's going to happen, so be like oh, and it's approaching the door. Then the second one it'll turn out to be like a harmless mm-hmm. thing, and then it'll slowly get kind of more macabre. Then it always kind of works out in the end, and there's always a little twist, and it's very easy to kind of emulate. Mm-hmm. But maybe there is something in that idea that it's kind of like writing upwards as well. It's kind of like you're writing horror, you somehow feel more mature because you think mm-hmm. it's scary. Yeah. And then you do read Stephen King and just like, it's like Goosebumps but with a lot of sex in yeah. it, isn't it? <laughs> and more death. Yeah, yeah, massively. Um, I'm going to talk about your book now because why not? I've got a book, oh yes. Yeah. I'm holding it up, it's yeah. a podcast. That's right. <laughs> um, the Guardian. Mm says that it explores modern male anxiety. Mm -hmm. I I think it's quite a simple definition now that I've read it. Do you you agree with that? I mean, partly that's what he was doing, I think. Mm -hmm. But you can only realise it retrospectively, I think. I've come to think of it as, um, you know, a lot of poetry in history is kind of men looking at women Mm -hmm. or the male gaze on women. So I just turned that around onto other men. Yeah. And it was just kind of seeing what happened if you did that, really. But also, I am fascinated by that kind of crisis of masculinity and the idea of what it takes to be a man now. And mm-hmm. Where heterosexual men in particular feel that they fit in this kind of new landscape. And oftentimes they just don't know, so they go to the gym. Yeah. And that's genuinely kind of, seems to me to be a truth of it, that they bulk up to compensate for lack of kind of stability in where they might fit in a kind of social hierarchy. Mm-hmm. That was one of my favorite poems, and I think it's one of everyone's favorite poems that's read your book. Is the men weeping in the gym? Yeah. Um, I think it, I, I, and I think you've basically answered the next question I was going to ask you. But it doesn't feel like I think there's things in that because it is very, it is man centric. Yeah. But I think there's a lot of things in man centric. That's a great title. That's yeah. going to be the next book. <laughs> but I don't think it's. I, I think there are things in there, and I don't think it's particularly gay-centric either, but I think there's loads of things in there that straight men and women hmm. can relate to, especially with uh, stories like, you know, men weeping in the gym 
uh, stories, poems like women weeping in the gym, and strong men as well, which is probably yeah. my favorite one. Oh, yeah. that's nice. I mean, I think it's interesting talking about The Guardian. Claire Armistead ended up saying something like, who's on the judging panel for that, said, you know, you look at the cover or you read the blurb or I'd kind of read a bit about what the book was going to be about and I didn't think it was going to be for me because I'm heterosexual, mm-hmm. I'm 40-something and I'm a woman. And actually what was really nice was she said, actually, no, it's, it's about universalities of love or kind of sex or connection. And mm-hmm. that was really nice because I never wanted it to kind of be a gay book or a book just about men. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just about love yeah. or bodies. I think that's why it's really clever because... Um, like you say, the cover immediately th- makes you think, right, gay poetry. But when you read it, um, especially ones like um, What Men Take, I yeah. think is another one where, you know, that's clearly as, you know, that's about, oh, it's almost as straight as, well, I don't know, maybe it's just the way I've read it, I've read things that I, I kind of put myself in a lot of those yeah. places quite easily. I think that's true. And I think it was just meant to look at men men in general Mm -hmm. and see and also because you know in places like gyms when they feel that they're acting very masculine and heterosexual it's often incredibly homoerotic yeah massively and and men in gyms now it seems to me want straight men in gyms want the same thing that gay men want which is for other men to look at them and kind of validate how they look and certainly these kind of guys that are into kind of bulking and bodybuilding what they want isn't they don't much care really if a woman walks down the street and finds them attractive, they want the other guy in the gym to turn around and go, oh, that's some good gains on your delts or whatever yeah. it is they say to each other. Yeah. And that's kind of the... That's what they're after, and that's very interesting because in many ways that is also what gay men want, for another mm-hmm. man to look at them and find them attractive. Yeah. And so that kind of nuance, I think, is very interesting. Yeah, so do I. It's, it's, the gym that I used to go to when I went to gyms uh, in Ermston was very much like that. It's like the... You know, you had the... There's a point where there's a guy who would go and he was very open in the locker room about walking around, like, with nothing on. And he'd get his mate to take photos of him in front of the mirror. Yeah, and then he'd come out... And then he would come out and he's clearly a straight guy. And uh, he would do push-ups and have the guy lay on his back. And you just think... That's great. It's just like... But they're the kind... What's very interesting is they're the guys who... If I was walking down Oxford Road holding my boyfriend's hand, mm-hmm. that might joke about it or might kind of nudge each other yeah. and kind of be uncomfortable around that. Yeah. And so there's something very interesting going on there, I think. Um, yeah. the, and that wasn't kind of consciously in my head when I was writing poems like The Men Weeping in the Dream. I think it's just you look afterwards and think, ah, oh, that's probably what, that must be what I was kind of interested in. Yeah. I'd never been to Ormston. But clearly, that's, the, that's like the hotbed of homosexual no, interactions. Yeah. But do you know what? You don't know how true that is. It is literally. I'm pretty sure um, it's like the overcompensating capital of the UK. Definitely, <laughs> it's not like it's town slot. It should be definitely. Um, one of the, the other things I find about this, and one of the things, uh, I mean, I'm not a poet, but I, I really. When I read collections of poetry, I really have difficulty with the difference in uh, emotions. Yeah. And when I say I have problems with it, I mean, like, it's, uh, you know, I, I really struggle when you, because there's a couple of dark, really dark ones in there yeah. that take you by surprise. Um, I am, especially. I think that's the one that really, when I, I read that one the first time, and you just kind of blow past it. Yeah. But then you think, whoa, hang on. You read it again and realize just how horrific it is. Oh, good. Well, but that's that's how I read it, anyways. No, that it's, it was a hard one to write. I bet because all the other ones in the book are kind of about my life to a certain mm. extent, and that one is not kind of it's not about my life. It's a true story. Gosh, but it's someone else's story to tell, and so I wrestled with it for a long time. But it was one of those that kind of lodged itself in my head and just thought, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and tell this, and I, so I thought, well, the only way to do that is just incredibly plainly. And I'm not going to make it beautiful or tell make poetry out of it. I'm just going to kind of tell the kind of facts of what happened almost. Um, but no, true story of when I was living Gosh. in Liverpool a couple of years ago. What is it? Uh, is it a person's name then I am? No, uh, just in memoriam. Oh, of um, it is. See, I'm just... But yeah. But I couldn't spell that, so I used the initials. 
um, yeah, because I just wanted it to be kind of very plain. And it was this guy, you know, I only had interactions with electricians sort of two or three times, but it, it was that kind of intimacy of him texting me things like that. And so I can't come today. I'm still a bit drunk from the wedding, from the party and things like that. And, and then he kind of telling me, you know, he didn't just phone up and say, I can't come today. He phoned up and kind of told me this story, but then turned up a few days later. Um, Gosh. And, and it was kind of heartbreaking. And I didn't want to write it, and but it just mm. sat there and I thought, so the way to do it is just to tell it very plainly. Yeah. Uh, which is what I like poetry to do, I think. Really. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. And I think there's, there's some in here that I find really quite, obviously quite funny. Hmm. And it, funny in a way where I'm not sure if it's supposed to be funny or if I'm just evil as a human being. Um, men weeping in the gym, for instance. That's I thought, quite funny. I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. And strong men as well. Strong. I just think, because it's like, that's the most horrible child. And yet, they're all like that. <laughs> that's the, and it's like, strongman, it's interesting. Strongman's people's reaction to strongman is either. And actually, like, I love watching an audience's reaction to stuff because, or listening to it if you're doing a reading, because you can tell kind of where they're going to land on certain poems. So some people find strongman kind of really moving. Some people find parts of it quite funny. Some people find urination hilarious mm. for obvious reasons. Yes. Because it, but all the way through, even to the parts where you think the probably shouldn't be laughing at that, mm-hmm. I'm trying to be moving, mm-hmm. they kind of, they find it very funny. And some people kind of find it very moving. And it's just, the reason I kind of love reading out loud for me kind of to audiences is every time someone has a different reaction mm. and you can never quite tell because some people laugh because they're uncomfortable and some people laugh because they genuinely find it funny mm-hmm. and I just find that quite interesting but yeah. it's nice to have a reaction the worst thing would be if they were just kind of sat there wouldn't it yeah not saying anything yeah that's why I'm always worried like when I watch poets on stage because I don't want to be the only one that laughs <laughs> like, yes. yeah. so it's oh. best just not to yeah <laughs> not appreciatively that's right. Or not, depending on the poet. Mm. You credit the New Reading North Award. I've read mm. some things about you uh, for oh, helping you with the writing of the book. Yeah. Uh, like I say, this is a kind of a, uh, there's some practical advice in this about oh, yeah. writers and stuff. How did you get in touch with them? And um, So New Writing North do a thing called Northern Writers Awards, mm-hmm. which I think everyone should enter. Um, they give them out to any age. They give them out for prose and poetry. And there's some young bursaries as well, I think. And New Writing North used to be based in Newcastle, so it used to be North East. Mm-hmm. Recently, that year that I won, in fact, I think, they brought it down to mean North West, Yorkshire, um, and kind of anything above that, really. So people in Manchester or North West can enter. Mm-hmm. Um, and every year they have these Northern Writers Awards where they give out prizes of like 5,000, 2,000, 1,000 to five or six poets, five or six um, prose writers. Mm-hmm. And so I was just lucky enough to get one... Um, Gave me five grand, um, which was nice. And by that point, in many ways, actually, most of the book had been written. But then what they also did was they, they're kind of very nice and they say, right, we've given you the money, but how else can we support you? What else can we do? Wow. And, they sem- and I said, what would be really nice is I've just about written the book and I've got all my edits from Robin at Jonathan Cape. I, need to, I want to go away somewhere for a bit and just finish it. And so they gave me... They do a prize called the Gordon Byrne Prize and they gave me his old cottage... They were still being done up, up in the kind of borders of Scotland for two weeks. Um, I didn't realise it was ten miles away from anywhere. <laughs> so I had to get a taxi from Berwick yeah. and get a food delivery the first day. And I lasted ten days and went slightly mad. Because it was literally in the middle of nowhere. And yeah. nothing was... I had to walk one day, I had to like walk the ten miles into town yeah. to get some more milk. Um, and you'd kind of wake up at five do a bit of writing and by like 10 o'clock you'd be like right and there was no TV there was Wi-Fi thank God otherwise mm-hmm. I might have like gone a bit the shining <laughs> but there'd be no one to kill because they don't have me there and um, but no that was good so they're very very supportive and what and they kind of they're very interested in just developing writers developing new talent mm-hmm. and something certainly you know if there's people listening that want to get into writing whatever age they are even if they're starting quite late on in life New Writing North, I think, can offer a lot of support mm. and are very good. Do you remember which poems you wrote in that place? That Some of the new stuff mm. I wrote. Um, and I wrote The Ending to Yoga. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wrote... Yoga's another one that I think is quite like gender 
neutral. Yeah, like it yeah. could be about yeah, because it's just got a lot of the poems just usually you, mm-hmm. and because they're personal, people just assume they're about men. Mm-hmm. But they might. Not well, it's even got men in the title. But if you ignore that, if you ignore the title, <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> and every most of the language they could be about women um, <laughs> yeah. but no but, but you know some of them could be gender neutral but no I wrote the end of yoga because that wasn't quite working there was a line in that echoed too much with urination that was the other thing that you don't I didn't realise until I was putting together a book that you construct a poem and then you've got another poem and until you put them all together and someone says right this is the order of the book there was the end the pale yellow lost line in urination echoed too much with a line that I put at the end of yoga. So suddenly you have to kind of play them off against each other and say, right, that and that urination one worked better, so yoga needs a new ending. And it becomes very technical like that in a way that I think when you just start kind of drafting individual poems, you don't necessarily know that because mm-hmm. you don't kind of see how they're talking to each other. But, you know, I finished off a few poems, started a couple of new ones, started a couple of terrible ones, and just read a lot as well. Um, read a lot... Um, that's brilliant because they, to give you the freedom to do that sort of thing without, you know, coming after you afterwards and saying, show us what Show us done. what you did. No, it's yeah. great. And, you know, I, they gave me that quite for free because it wasn't kind of quite finished. So I was still doing a bit of work to it. Um, so I didn't have to use really any of the prize money. I just kind of bought my train ticket up with some of the prize money. Mm-hmm. Um, but God, yeah, it was so remote. It was lovely. And then when I got back, they were like, yeah, you're the first person that's ever gone there alone. Normally people take a partner or a dog. I was like, that would have been good information to have. Yeah, before I went. The nearest person on Grindr was like 25 miles away. That's how remote it was, which is like the kind of modern way to judge, I think. Mm. Yeah. How far away people are. You, uh... <laughs> you... The other thing I was going to mention, and this is one of those things where it, I, when I read something... And I, I think I've discovered something, and I'm almost worried to ask you about it because it might be complete bullshit, but the word weight kind of appears in almost every single poem. That's interesting. Yeah. And not just that. like W-E-I-G-H-T, but W-A-I-T. See, I knew, I, I knew it was unintentional. Oh, that's interesting, though. Mm. So I, I just thought, is that something that you think about a lot? Whether it's like the weight, you know, support, it, it's, it's interesting, it's like the supporting the weight of others or waiting for waiting for people or or just literally having to being fat basically so there's like you've got the, there's three different ways of the, the word weight see I knew I, I knew this, had, this was nothing but that's interesting well I'll tell you what subconsciously maybe I've always had I've always been very self-conscious about my weight hmm. and I had a lot of issues with that when I was younger and there's something about carrying it around. There's something about carrying that around that I'm very interested in. And also the idea of waiting, I think, the idea of... I'm fascinated by the idea of two people just kind of missing each other and having to wait for something that never quite arrives, in a kind of godo sense, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe there is something in that, but it was certainly so it wasn't intentional. Mm. But that's interesting. Mm. Yeah, it's one of those things where... You, I think this thing with poetry, you, you kind of take your own things from it as well. Yeah. And I knew, as soon as I started asking the question, I just thought, this is something that I've read into it that doesn't exist. And which I it clearly do. doesn't exist if you've read it. Mm. That's fine. Yeah. Who are some of your biggest influences? I mean, obviously Tom Gunn. Tom Gunn. Although, God, people get so mad when I say that is great. Why? There's a generation of older gay male poets mm. who don't like the fact that I kind of claimed Tom Gunn, I think, because they were all kind of alive when he was alive and they all did readings with him and things. And Tom Gunn was just the poet who gave me permission to... Or just... It was the first poet I'd ever read. I'd read, like, Larkin and I'd done GCSE stuff. He was the first one that I'd read where I was like, oh, you can write about this stuff. Or he's got a life that seemed impossibly glamorous. Mm. Um... And later on, it was stuff about like his syllabics and things like that, and his kind of tightness of form. But more than kind of influencing on the style of it, it was just an influence of kind of knowing what I could write about, or knowing that it was possible to... Having permission, almost. Having permission, yeah, incredible. And I mean, I think that giving of permission is how I always like to think about it. And then people like Sharon Olds, who just is unflinching. I read Stag's Leap and just kind of fell in love. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Doty. Jeff Hattersley, who's a poet from South Yorkshire who just writes these kind of very down-to-earth, matter-of-fact, very plain things. Um, and also the novelist, John McGregor. Oh, yeah. I know him. Sorry, go on. I love John. Mm. I don't know him, but I just obsessed with I him. I don't... I say I know him. I've met him once. I used to live in Nottingham. Sorry, I, why did I interrupt you? Go ahead. 
<laughs> I know him. I looked in Nottingham. I saw him in Tesco. Um, we, uh, he started this thing called the Nottingham Writer Studio. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I was a member at some time. Oh, wow. And this this is... I, I'm not leaving this in because this is a story that I... There, he, I came into the Nottingham Writer Studio saying... Oh, because I wrote this column for this local kind of uh, artsy magazine okay. for about five years on, you know, just taking the piss out of England, living in, as an expat in England. And... We, it was before he'd won or was nominated for the Booker. Mm. Went to meet him. Went to meet the, this John McGregor guy. Went in and uh, he was he was talking to me. And I said, they they said their big goal was to get people who are really interested in getting published. And I said, well, you know, I, I've gotten published, but I'm not getting really getting paid. So that didn't count. He goes, what are you talking about? You've had a column for five years in a yeah. newspaper. That's brilliant. And I was like, oh, great. And he goes, so, so what column is it? And I told him. And a guy that was sitting behind him, this is John McGregor, the John McGregor, goes. You're that Canadian guy <laughs> in front of because I yeah anyway fantastic. So uh, my only claim to fame is that there was a period of time for like a, a nanosecond where I was more famous than John McGregor in Nottingham. That's amazing. <laughs> On that kind of Venn diagram of yeah. I, like I said, I'm not leaving that in. I'll do it. It's good. Uh, um, yeah. What is, what, is, what about John McGregor? The plainness of John McGregor. Yeah. And his kind of ability to write speech without any speech marks which just baffled me at first. And I was kind of like, how is he able to do that? He's so tightly woven as a thing. And so I read If No One Speaks Remarkable Things, mm-hmm. and then I read... Um, I can never remember the title of that. I want to say Even one. the Dogs, but it's Even not, the Dogs is, is the third the one, isn't right? it? There's that second one where um, the man goes in search of his mother. And I can't honestly remember what it's called. But it's amazing. Neither can I. What's the matter with me? doesn't matter. Go on. We'll, um, maybe I'll talk about it. And it's just like incredibly... Let's find out. Let's find out on Google. Yeah. Shall I keep talking about Google? No. Okay. Let's I'll say oh. it like I remembered it. Yeah, that's right. John McGregor. This isn't the sort of thing that happens to someone like you. That one? Is that what it was called? Well, is that the short story? Or if nobody speaks of remarkable things, even the dogs. Yeah. So many ways to begin. Oh, that was it. So many ways to begin. Right. We'll pretend that never happened. Yep. <laughs> can we can we even go back now? Yeah, that's fine. So okay. I mean, I read "If Nobody Speaks Remarkable Things," and then I read the second one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you know what? I'm leaving this in just because it's funny. Uh, Google it again. So it's, it just went straight out of my head. Yeah. So many ways to begin. So many ways to begin. Yes. That's the wall. These titles are really difficult to remember, to be <laughs> fair. But they're great. And Except for even the dogs. Like, even everyone the dogs, remembers everyone that one. Remembers that yeah. one. It's got a new one coming out next year as well, mm. I think. Um, he's a, I, I, I was just about to say, he's a bit of a genius, but I don't know if I should say that because he'll hear it. No, but he is. Yeah. And there's something just remarkably kind of normal about the stories, which I always loved. Like, I won't do a spoiler for so many ways to begin, but there's this kind of wonderful journey in it where... He's kind of expect the character expects to get something at the end, and in the end, they just kind of can't really. And there's this wonderful moment about halfway through where these married couple take their their youngest daughter off to college and to university, and so um, there's kind of nobody left at home. And I always use this in teaching poetry because I think it's quite remarkable. There's these three lines of dialogue at the end of one chapter where the dad comes back from taking the daughter to uni, and the mum sat on the daughter's bed kind of obviously feeling quite sad about it and he walks in and the woman goes that didn't take long did it and he goes no the traffic was clear all the way to the ring road and she goes that's not what I meant she said and it's just like in those three lines it just kind of encapsulates everything and that's kind of part of his genius I think his ability to strip everything back and so I thought wow if he can do that in if he can do that in prose I'm going to try and write I want to write poetry the way John McGregor writes fiction Right. Um, and that was kind of a big part of what I wanted to do. Yeah. I think it's successful. I think you've been successful, frankly. Thank you. Um, especially with uh, physical. Um, I'm going to show you this question, and you can tell me whether you want to answer it or not. <laughs> it's not like a picture of that. No. But it's... I, I think when I show it to you, you'll know what I mean. Whether you want to talk about that or not. Oh, yeah, that's fine. Okay, good. Was your father an influence to you? Yeah, in a lot Obviously, of he must be. He would. He, he is. And I feel much more comfortable talking about it now than when I was first starting out, because I think then there's something in... You don't want to be the... the you don't want to be the... Off, yeah, and exactly. that's And he understood that as well, and kind of was always fine with that. I mean, the first thing is that I just got to grow up in a house 
full of poetry books, contemporary mm. poetry books, which is odd and not all normal and something that at the time you don't appreciate and then you look back and think, oh, actually, you know, we had most of the contemporary poetry books that were being published kind of month by month or year by year. And so that was, so I read a lot of kind of stuff that I wouldn't have got to read normally. And then, and also just to be able to see what it was, because I think that, you know, if you tell people you're a poet, what does that really mean in terms of like, you know, we spend a lot of time with the students now in modules kind of saying, well, you know, what does it mean to be a freelancer and stuff like that? And what I got to see kind of firsthand was someone actually make a living out of that and kind of do it as a job and kind of what that world actually looked like and kind of that it might involve a lot of travelling or that it might involve a lot of kind of early mornings and late nights and things. And then also just, you know, his the ability to look at something ordinary and make it beautiful um, as well. And he's been incredibly encouraging, um, mm-hmm. as they both have, because there might have been a sense in which you sort of want to have a, have a kind of stable job, have a proper mm-hmm. job, but... Um, both him and mum have been incredibly supportive yeah. and um, and it's really nice now we do occasional kind of gigs together which oh, is always wow. nice like a kind of father-son fishing trip Yeah, um, which is nice because your poetry couldn't be more different exactly really. and that's what's nice about it as well I think like I do kind of um, it's often funny if people try and compare us like that and you think I'm not, I've not read much of his <laughs> homoerotic poetry <laughs> Whether that's a subcanon that I'm not aware of. Yeah. But also, would you want to? Well, really? well yeah. I don't know. Um, but the, and also that I'm fairly confident that I did everything on my own. Yeah. And I don't think I was kind of given anything. And if people have ever kind of accused me of nepotism or anything like that, I always think well, actually all it could ever what I kind of tell myself to make myself feel better is all it could ever get you is one thing. So nepotism might get you the chance to write one thing for a newspaper. Mm-hmm. But the, there's too many people that want to do it. So if you're yeah. terrible at it, they're not going to ask you to do the second one or the third no. one. Or nepotism might get you one poem in a magazine. Maybe it's not going to get you a kind of sustained career of getting stuff in magazines or getting stuff published because there's yeah. so many people that want to do it that that wouldn't be enough. You have to also kind of have the talent to do it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think the fact that they are so different... Yeah, that it's. I mean, it's that obvious to anybody. That's uh, yeah. If you if they were remotely similar, I could understand it would be, it'd be a tricky one. Yeah, and I think, and also, you know, I've got two older sisters who just aren't involved in that world at all. Mm. And we all got as when we were younger, like all three of us would get took to things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think there's any sense in which you can kind of raise a poet. Yeah. Kind of deliberate. <laughs> I don't know why yeah. you like, but I don't. I don't think there's a sense in which you can do that. I think you have to kind of just find your own way into it. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the whole, 99.9% of people are kind of very nice about it yeah. and very generous. And I think the ones that aren't, whether privately or publicly, are the ones who probably feel that they wrote, that they themselves wrote something that maybe they haven't got mm-hmm. yet. Yeah. Another thing that uh, I've read some of your articles, mm. it, that's given me, it's given me a whole new respect for Barnsley. Oh my God, yeah. Uh, you mentioned how accepting the gay scene was in Barnsley. And it is quite surprising because mm. it's almost incongruous because I still necessarily wouldn't walk through, say, Barnsley Town Centre holding my partner's hand or anything mm. like that because I think that other people would still be uncomfortable with that or kind of wouldn't kind of accept that. But what it had was this kind of weekly gay night at the Chicago Rock Cafe that's since closed down <laughs> where they had kind of drag acts on mm-hmm. and they were kind of, you know, I started going there when I was kind of in college and stuff, and it was just this kind of wonderful community. And it seemed at that time like the centre of the world. Mm-hmm. And everyone was kind of really happy, everyone was really accepting. It was just a chance to really kind of explore it somewhere quite benign mm-hmm. before you come to a city like Manchester, where I think probably at 16, 17, it would have been quite overwhelming yeah. and quite scary. But it is amazing. Like I remember when they asked me to write that article about kind of growing up gay in the North, and I think the kind of angle they half had in the back of their mind was going to be kind of kind of bad it was mm-hmm. and actually you know it was nice to be able to tell this kind of positive story and that gay night is moved kind of venue but I think it still goes on every Tuesday night and it's nice because it's a chance for these young lads and these young girls who aren't sure about themselves to kind of go out in a town that isn't on the whole that accepting mm-hmm. and there's this kind of safe space um, mm-hmm. and I think that's really nice I think that's really kind of admirable yeah um, and it was great. I just used to get so drunk every, like, you know, in the way that young people do, kind mm-hmm. of recklessly. Yeah. All the time. And I'd moved out for a year when I was 16 and lived with my friend who had a house. Um, 
and so she was a bit older and so like I just used to kind of so I was almost like having that university experience of living with kind of roommates going out and getting drunk a lot um, and still going to college and it was it was kind of one of the great times I think mm. in my life I look back on it with kind of I don't know fondness fondness that's the good word mm. nostalgia yeah um, I'm almost finished I know this is very good we've been speaking for 45 minutes really yep Flies, doesn't it? It's like 20 minutes of that was just trying to find the names to John McGregor. That's true. Oh, that is true, yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I know your second collection isn't in any way ready to be published in any way, but how how is it coming? When when can we see it? Sure. When it might be published. Mm. Um, Towards the end of the decade... That sounds grand. Wow. But we're in 2016 now, so that's yeah. not that far away. Gosh. Uh, one assumes, or maybe like, so, mm-hmm. you know, in a few years. So I've had to Wow, sign. that's quite a long time. Yeah. I mean, I've signed a contract, mm-hmm. notionally, because Jonathan Cape only publishes sort of four books a year normally of poetry. And so there's kind of just, you have to kind of sign a contract so they can fit you in the kind of schedule, as it were. Um, but I've got a sabbatical from university next semester, so from September. So hoping to kind of get a lot of it kind of nailed then. Or maybe just kind of write over someone and do the editing process. It's just because the process of it takes so long that, you know, if I finish this book next summer, finish writing it, it would then take a year to kind of go through the whole proof stage and then you'd have to kind of find a slot in the publication. So it's often mm-hmm. kind of a two-year gestation period for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I used to tell myself that nobody's waiting. Like, nobody cares, do they? It's different like, now, though, isn't it? I might have peaked. Mm-hmm. This might be... Well, you see, that's the other thing as well. It's going to come out and people are going to go, well... Mm. <laughs> it's not physical, is it? No, there's um, no Guardian First Book Award anymore. No is Guardian there? First Book Award. Yeah. I couldn't win that anyway. But there's, yeah. no, there's no Guardian Second, second Book Award. Book. They should make one. Just yeah, for me. Um, <laughs> just for me to be more popular. No, like. <laughs> um, but no, it'll be really nice, and it's just nice to kind of have that freedom to write. And it's interesting because physical ended up having a theme, mostly because a accidentally and b because of the way it was edited. That Robin Robertson at Cape is so kind of smart that he came in and went right this is quite a flabby manuscript and we don't need these bits but actually this bit's the good bit and this bit's the good bit so it kind of became very tight and so I sat down immediately after that came out and went right what's the theme for the second book I'm Mm -hmm. going to write about this and actually that just didn't work yeah and also was desperately trying not to write physical again so I was kind of writing stuff that wasn't really me or I wasn't comfortable writing but I was trying to be different mm-hmm. and I had a really good meeting with Robin where, was, where he kind of pointed out the ones that I'd wrote that were the strongest were the ones that they were still different from physical but the ones I was clearly comfortable writing mm-hmm. so um, but no so it's quite a scary period as well because physical is kind of the accumulation of several years of work and so you just have odd poems and you've got like a stack of stuff that you can eventually put into a manuscript when mm-hmm. you, once the first book's done you're just left with nothing there's literally nothing, so you have to build it from scratch again. Um, and that's quite scary and quite daunting because you don't know if you can do it again mm. or you're not sure how you ended up doing it the first time. Yeah. And so... Um, have you have you rediscovered how you did it the first time yet? Or are you still in the... Oh, yeah, I'm still in that kind of quite messy period. But writing again, which is nice, mm-hmm. um, and enjoying it mostly because I don't really enjoy writing that much. Neither do I. I hate it. See, all, all good writers think that... Mm. Um, there was someone at home and I cried and go, I really love writing. <laughs> Why? Yeah, um, it's horrible. It's horrible. It's painful mm-hmm. and it's not nice. No. But then there's something at the end that makes it somehow worth it. Although I'm not sure what that is. Yeah. Adulation and well, awards. Loads awards, of awards so and fame. Many awards, groaning yeah. shelves. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no. Um, Brilliant. Well. Yeah, so I don't know. I've petered out then. Go no, on. it's good. I, it's because I interrupted you rudely as usual. Sorry. Yeah. Well, that's been a good dynamic. Yeah. <laughs> More or less. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you very much. Thank um, you. What would you like to read? I thought, well, it's up to you. I can read. <gasps> I get to pick. I get to get pick. No, do you know what? No, I changed my mind. I was going to choose my favorite. <laughs> I was going to choose my favorite poem in physical, but I don't want that. You could I want do to... that. You could, we could do that, and then I could read a new one. Strongman, please. Strongman. My nephew asks if I can bench press him. His mother's new lover can and often does. My nephew, who once said my boyfriend was illegal. My nephew with his dad's voice and jaw. My nephew, who now protests I had my hand on his balls for the first attempt. I try again. Let both his wicked legs rest against one palm. 
put my other to his heart and push. Because what is masculinity if not taking the weight of a boy and straining it from oneself? Here we are, a man holding a boy above him, horizontal like an offering to the artex ceiling, not even a minor Greek would see us fit to sculpt. Kill the humour in that one, <laughs> didn't it? Maybe it's in a Canadian accent. It's just Maybe hilarious. <laughs> So that was good. My neighbor is now playing, I think, Bangra? Do you know what? He stopped playing it just as I said that. Maybe he can hear me through this wall. It was really interesting to talk to Andrew about personal interpretation of poetry because the two poems I mentioned, The Men Are Weeping in the Gym and the one he read, Strongman, were, as I said earlier, properly hilarious in my head when I read them. It's probably too late to say this now as you've heard him read Strongman, but if you've got a copy of his book, go read Strongman with my voice in your head and see if it makes it funny. I don't know. I cannot read the word balls and not laugh. It is, it's just the funniest word. Oh man, I'm such a pleb. Am I allowed to say pleb? I, I said pleb now and toff, and I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say these words. Are they okay? Are they mean words? I don't know. I suppose I should figure out what these things actually properly mean before I say them. Uh, Laura Robertson told me off for saying pleb in the last podcast, uh, the last one, two podcasts ago, and I can't remember if I left it in. I think I may have edited it out. Edited it. That's really hard to say. Edited edited it out. Um, I'm not entirely sure what it means. Uh, I suppose I really have to be careful using British slang in that way before I know what these words actually mean. I made the mistake once of calling a workmate a nonce, not knowing what nonce meant. I thought nonce and ponce were interchangeable. Uh, I found out later by his angry face that nonce was probably not a word I'm allowed to say. I think it means pedo. That was an awkward day. I have to say. I used to really despise Canuckian expats who use British slang, but I've been here so long now that I don't even know when I'm doing it. So I don't know what I'm saying, and I don't know when I'm saying it, is all I'm saying. Isn't it interesting how horror acts as a gateway drug for many writers? I know I've talked about this before, but it keeps coming up. Nick Royal also mentioned it, and um, Jen Ashworth is a closet Stephen King fan. So that's a bit of a spoiler alert. I suppose it's not much of an alert when I say spoiler alert after the spoiler. Oh well, tough luck. It's a long interview and there's lots of good stuff, other than the Stephen King bit. Nobody listens to this podcast this far into it anyway, so who cares? Working with young offenders also seems to come up. Who knew young offenders needed so much advice about writing? Uh, It seems a bit cruel to me to introduce them to a painful an awful and low-paid world that is writing. It's almost like putting them in second jail. No, it isn't. I feel a bit bad about dissing Ermston as well. Um, but hey, it is a properly weird place. We just had this massive American-style sports bar open up to accompany the American Craft Beer Pub. So either we're becoming a bit trendy or really awful. I can't fit even more awful than before. I can't decide yet. We'll have to see. I suppose I should say for the record that in the podcast, I was not talking about the big fancy 24-hour gym that opened up last year when I told the story about the dude doing sit-ups in the almost buff uh, with his mate on his back. I was talking about the old shitty gym in the industrial area. I, fe- I don't know why I'm apologizing for this stuff. I know why, because I have to live in Ermston. That's why. Um, I'm, I, I'm sure... None of that sort of malarkey carries on in the new fancy shiny gym. But of course, I've no idea. I'd rather spend time at the bottom of a septic tank than in a gym. Ooh, sitting in someone else's sweat while pedaling a bike that goes nowhere. How fucked up is that? If aliens landed today and saw that shit, they would nuke the fuck out of us. And rightfully so. 
Andrew will now read another poem about his nephew, and it's, like I say, it's one that no one's ever heard before. Aren't you lucky? Answer, yes. Bye. I'll read this tiny one, only because um, that first one, Strong Men's about my nephew, and this one's kind of about my nephew interacting with his new sister, Isla, who's just been born, so my new niece, called Fraternal. I watch my nephew putting socks on his new sister, leaning in, eyes crunched up, as though focusing on something technical, as though unbuckling the intricate shoe of a lady or unlacing the boot of a teammate. He's pretending to parent her. He's responding to her cries. It's how we learn of the basic wants of people. The foot is cold. They must be covered. The body is needful. It must be undressed. 